questions about um, about anything? Indian religions, stock market, the weather. Anything? No questions. Why is it 75 in December? Why is it 75? Because we're in Florida. Um, anyway, I, I actually enjoyed very much having a chance to uh, go over all these things with you. And, uh, I think I'll miss all of you. But uh, we are in the material world, so all these things end. Anyway, so t today I wanted to talk about um, ecology. Uh, years ago, ecology or environmentalism was a... Uh, was an area that certain people, certain pious, open-minded people were interested in. Now it, it seems to be a matter of survival. And um, so there's a quote from our book, uh, Introducing Hinduism. Professor Rodriguez says that um, as the dominant religion of the world's... Oops, gonna turn this on. As the dominant religion of the world's largest democracy... Hinduism will inevitably play significant roles in a world where nations are more interconnected than ever before. Environmental issues are global concerns. The face of Hinduism is already changing in response to these forces and so on. And uh, so I think the basic point Professor Rodriguez makes, and uh, I have to agree with him, is that... Uh, <laughs> Avoid it, is that um, on the one hand you have some very excellent principles which uh, are very much needed nowadays, and on the other hand, uh, hey, we have cookies, but people are coming late. I'm not a, are they entitled to cookies? You know, they came late. So, um, these principles have not always been followed. And Professor Rodriguez says in that regard that it would be naive to assume that all Hindus actually adhere to these values rigorously. And we'll talk about what those values are. The discourses, which is a very modern, well, postmodern, cool way to talk. The discourses of progress, economic success, and modernization in other words, the fact that people are really into these things. Uh, progress, economic success, and modernization, as well as the simple imperative to survive, these things would be far more compelling. So where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, you have all these lofty religious ideals, but in the meantime, I want to make a, well, not a buck, a rupee. Hey, we have cookies. Yeah. So, uh, this is our last class slash holiday party. So, <laughs> so these, what the values are, what the values are which really are um, very favorable to saving the planet are things like respect for all life, respect for all life. We saw that with the Jains especially and also Buddhism and also Hinduism. And uh, the idea that the physical world, come on in. 
have to we have to move this merchandise. So, want a cookie? Promise, promise to behave in the class will give you a cookie. Okay. So, um, as far as the fact that everyone doesn't follow these principles, first I would like to argue that. Uh, Having and preserving good principles can be valuable historically, even if there's a lot of hypocrisy from time to time. And an example of this, which I think I gave perhaps earlier in the course, is the American Civil Rights Movement. The American Civil Rights Movement based its argument on uh, certain legal principles, such as equality, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and so on. And even before the, the American Civil Rights Movement, let's say, which began in the 50s and the 60s, uh, there was a, obviously, a, a, a movement so to get the right to vote for women. Because women couldn't vote in the good old days. So, <coughs> so if you look at these movements, such as... Uh, suffrage movement for women to get the right to vote, or, or the civil rights movement for racial equality. These movements have always appealed to and argued on the basis of certain legal and moral principles which existed. And the basic argument was that our society is hypocritical. We have these principles, we have these laws, but we're not following them. And so what we are demanding is that the law be followed. We need to have the rule of law, uh, a society which runs on the basis of, of objective principles and not hypocrisy. So even though certain principles like the Bill of Rights, let's say equality, freedom, and, and all that, even though these principles were not being followed, but they were still there, and you could refer to them, you could argue for them, you could demand that they be followed. And so in the same way, uh, the fact that within uh, the religions of India, and also Asia, you could say more generally to some extent, with a lot of Indian influence, the fact that in these religions of India they do have certain principles which environmentally are fantastic uh, is very important because we can appeal to them, especially within, of course, within the context of these religions of Buddhism or Hinduism. But also, uh, I, I think they, to some extent they have the potential to act as a type of conscience for the world. If you look at, I mean, spreading democracy now has almost been given a bad name by the outgoing administration because of all the uh, sort of uh, quixotic and violent attempts to spread democracy. But still, if we look overall, if you look at the American Bill of Rights, the freedom of religion, speech, and all that, and the influence these things have had in, in the rest of the world, not merely by, let's say, violent, preemptive uh, inter American intervention in different countries, but um, it's had an effect in Europe. Europe doesn't have a tradition of a Bill of Rights. In, in fact, American democracy, American freedom, American freedoms really go beyond even what Europe was comfortable with until very recently, and in other parts of the world. So the fact that America had these strong principles uh, the freedom of democracy, and so on, and the fact that America became such an important country, by various means, uh, had a very significant influence in the world. Definitely changed the way the world did its business. 
The fact that in most parts of the world you, you can go there and have a certain amount of freedom of speech and religion, uh, I think it, it's not exclusively because of American influence, but I think uh, American influence was vital. It, it, it had a very important historical role to play. <coughs> so uh, just as now the Western culture is kind of taking over everywhere, you know, globalization to some extent means Westernization. And uh, I think that Asia also has its part to play. Well, they, they like that idea. <laughs> so, our class doesn't seem quite as uh, party-like as their class. We'll have to compete with them. So, anyway, uh, Asia, I think, it is, and, and certainly India, has its role to play in contributing something very significant to the emerging world culture. It's not in the West. It's actually in India that uh, even thousands of years ago they had what, what I would think is a, uh, a discovery of insight <coughs> rather than simply uh, sectarian opinion, that somehow all life is worthy of respect. And uh, we actually, to this day, can't really create life. I mean, I mean, you can fool around with organic matter in a laboratory, you know, given organic matter. You've got to sort of have to be given the organic matter. But to create life is not something we can do. And there is something extraordinary and even miraculous about life. And there's some sense in which life should be respected. And, I mean, in philosophy, there's, there's a principle of uh, parsimony. Parsimony means uh, don't... Don't say something with more words than you need to express it, like in math. You know, if you say, hey, could I have a 39 of that pie? You know, it'd be easier to say, can I have half the pie if you really feel so inclined? So there's a principle in mathematics, in philosophy, in general, in communication. That thing should be said in the simplest possible way. That's, that's the... The principle of physics, looking for simple equations, simple statements that explain a lot. And so this very simple statement, which you find in India, that there are basically three fundamental real things that exist. There's matter. Matter is real. And of course, we've discussed so many philosophies which said that matter is sort of real or not real or whatever. But I'm, I'm obviously tilting toward the realism in the sense that there is a real thing, which is the physical world, so that your body is real. It may not be eternal, it may not ultimately be you, but it's, it's a real body. And other people's bodies are real bodies. That's why you have to respect other people's bodies. That's why you, know, you can't rape people or kill them and things like that, because there's a sense in which their bodies are real. And people's bodies are, you could say, uh, are... Uh, fields of, of natural rights. In other words, your body, the extent of your body, however far your body extends into space, uh, you have certain rights. And even there's even like a little buffer zone. Like people can't put their face right in your face. Even that is, you can't really, if you did that a lot, you'd probably be arrested. So, <laughs> so not only your physical body, but even a certain reasonable space around your body is a field of rights, of natural rights. I mean, the very fact that we claim that people have rights, we don't simply claim that, um, you know, it's our opinion. We, we actually, the, the view in this country and, and embedded in our Constitution is that it, it is a natural right. In other words, it's not just our opinion. For example, let's say we set the tax code. Let's say we say that people that earn a certain amount of money have to pay a certain percentage of their income in taxes. 
unless they're very rich and have very good lawyers, in which case the percentage goes down. But let's say, for example, that you earn a certain amount of money and you have to pay a certain amount of taxes. That's not absolute. I don't think anyone would argue that, let's say, for someone that earns $100,000 a year to pay 25% of your income in taxes is a natural law. It's a natural law. It's just somehow an eternal principle which is out there in nature. So there's certain laws we have which are just the laws we have. Sort of our best view of it or that's, you know, according to politics, certain people got power and they passed a certain law. But there are other principles that we take not to be human inventions but are natural rights. For example, Jefferson argued the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness if you are a white male. But in any case... <laughs> <laughs> so much for the good old days. So, still, obviously those rights have been extended because people realize, duh, that it's not just about white males. And in India, they realize it's not just about human beings. So from this Buddhist, Jain, Upanishadic perspective, to limit rights to people that happen to have human bodies is actually a type of speciesism. It's sectarian. It's fanatical. It's unfair. It gets into all kinds of problems. For example, what about someone who's mentally retarded and who actually is really capable of less intelligent activity than, let's say, a, 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 what do they call it? A, a certain kind of dog that's really smart. Pasture call it, what do they call it? Anyway. What do they call that dog? Pasture? Border collie. Border collie. That's how science says, you know, my border collie is smarter than your honor student, but... <laughs> so anyway, I mean, clearly there are cases of, of very intelligent animals who are practically smarter than human beings in comas or human beings who are, let's say, severely retarded and so on. And so why can't you kill those humans? So I think one thing that, and this all gets, of course, into the environment, I think what India is contributing here is a much more rational, logical, view of rights. In America today, there is a former, very highly paid NFL quarterback in jail because he was killing dogs. You read about that story? Atlanta Falcons. He was having, sort of had, on his land in Virginia, he was sponsoring dog fights and dogs that didn't perform well were, were eliminated because they, you know, they disappointed their masters. So, when, you know, things like brutal, sort of, you know, anyway, brutal killings of dogs. So this guy went to jail. This guy went to jail. He's still in jail. And the people who are, who, who are shocked, who are appalled at this, you know, go home and have their steak. And so what I'm trying to say is that there's not really a consistency here. There's not really a coherence. You have to, it seems, if you, if you take what the... By the way, the relevance of all this, by the way, is that the cattle industry, according to the United Nations and science, the cattle industry actually produces more greenhouse gases than all the motorized vehicles on Earth. And so it's very interesting that even, you know, good old Al Gore, everybody likes Al Gore, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, almost everybody likes Al Gore, so he's a nice guy, he drives a Prius, so, I mean, he, he came out with this film called A Very Incon An Inconvenient Truth, and there's, an, there's a, an article which you can Google, 
a very inconvenient truth. He doesn't mention the fact that the cattle industry produces more greenhouse gases than all the motorized vehicles. Plus, it's probably the main hydrology problem in this country in terms of water shortage, in terms of pollution of the underground water supply. So what's interesting is, in this article, if you Google this, a very inconvenient truth, is that all kinds of people who are leaders in the environmental movement in this country actually are against or, or really get annoyed by, or maybe, I don't know if they're guilty or whatever, by the animal rights movement. And so this guy, this guy was a co-founder, like our co-founder of, of uh, the... Greenpeace, and who was head of the Sierra Club for a long time, says that when he would go to these conventions of Greenpeace or the Sierra Club, they almost made a point not to have any vegetarian food there. It's very interesting. You know, it's, it, it's very interesting, the mentality, even though so there's not so much talk about that. There's a lot of talk about, about the fact that brutality against highly evolved mammals is actually one of the, probably the biggest producer of greenhouse gases in the world. And people just don't talk about that. So in India, they did talk, well, they didn't talk about greenhouse gases. But where, it gets into a philosophical question, where, where do the rights lie? In other words, think of a decadent woman <coughs> emperor, like that great line in Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, where she says, we're a cruel stepbrother, you're like the Roman emperors. But, uh, so think of the uh, cruel Roman emperors. Where, you know, if, they, if, if the emperor puts his thumb up, you live, thumbs down, you die. So the idea is that you don't have any rights yourself. There are no rights which are intrinsic to you. You don't have rights. You live at the pleasure of a tyrant. And it's like, for example, if you read articles about, you know, cabinet appointments and things like that, that you always hear this phrase that so-and-so serves at the pleasure of the president. That's the way they always say it, that, that you know, whatever office. They serve at the pleasure of the president. And so the notion that you live at the pleasure of a tyrant, that you have no intrinsic rights, the rights are all with the tyrant, and to the extent that that tyrant gives you rights, to that extent only you have rights. This is a legal and social, political, moral concept which we've rejected at the present time. However, in regard to animals, we still have that notion. If a particular animal has a good fortune to make a good pet in an urban environment. Because, you know, it's hard to keep a pet horse or cow uh, in the city. So, if an animal has good fortune to be the right size and to make a good pet in an urban environment, then we give rights to that creature. So that, uh, that there was a big scandal a few years ago because in Seattle, where people are very cool and they have lots of Starbucks and... <laughs> Anyway, you know, it's like this very cool city. So, in Seattle, where they don't tolerate things like this, some guy got into a real, like, road rage incident with another guy, and he took his pet dog and threw it off a highway bridge. And the dog died. So this was like a national scandal. And the fact that it happened in Seattle was just like, that was just too much. So anyway... <laughs> So he threw this dog off a highway bridge. But again, it's the, it's the rights are in us. The dog has no rights. The rights are within us. And we bestowed them on a particular animal. So uh, it's not a consistent view. If you look, it's this patchwork legal system which does not come to grips with the moral issue of where are the rights. Do creatures have rights? Does a dog have rights? 
Do other animals have rights? Are we simply the tyrants? Are we tyrants over animals that we bestow rights on them which they otherwise wouldn't have? And so in India, they very strongly had the view that the rights are in the creature itself, that all that lives has a right to continue living. I mean, if a tiger is you know, about to jump on you, then you can take out your lightsaber. That's another issue. But, um, but assuming, assuming that you are not really about to suffer significant harm or, you're, or other people are not about to suffer significant harm, the, the Hindu, Jain, uh, Buddhist view, even Sikhu, I'm sure, uh, ultimately in their more lucid echelons of that organization, that the idea would be that the rights, that life has rights, that all that lives has a right to live. And that we don't give that life and we shouldn't take it away. That all that lives has a right to live. And therefore, uh, we have to respect all life. There's a very interesting, I think I mentioned this earlier, there's an interesting um, practice, which I read about when I was doing my doctoral work, that um, in, in South India, I mentioned this before, when they were going to build a temple, say a Vaishnava temple, they had to, you had to level the land, because before you build, obviously, you have to, you have to level the land, clear the land, level it. And uh, they would do that by plows. They didn't have tractors back then. So, uh, because they were building a Devagriha, house of God, therefore they had, they couldn't use an ordinary plow, so they would carve a special plow. So, um, carve a plow, they had to cut a tree down, because they didn't, you know, they didn't have plastic factories back then. So, when they went out into the forest, and of course, because in South India there's all these technical rules, and it has to be this kind of tree, and so on and so forth, and it has to be facing in a certain direction. <laughs> anyway, so when they would go out to, and, and choose a tree, like this is a tree to make the plow, to clear the land, to build the house of God, uh, they had to acknowledge that that tree was a person, was a life, and not only, that, not only was that tree a living thing, there was a soul, there was a soul inside that tree, equal to our soul, but also that that tree was the center and the foundation of a community. You know, birds, squirrels, insects, all kinds of creatures, even people that live in the forest take shade under the tree. Uh, it might be a, it might provide food for different creatures. So you have to acknowledge that you are not only destroying, you're not only destroying the body of a uh, of a soul, a God that, that 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 God has given that body to that soul, and you're now destroying it. You're taking away what God has given, but also uh, you're actually destroying a community, or you're seriously disturbing and dislocating a community of life. And so before you cut that tree down, you had to acknowledge that. You had to beg all those people. You had to beg the community for forgiveness. And you had to pray for their well-being. Interestingly, you find similar notions even in animistic societies, say, in the Amazon jungle, where, let's say, they're going to go into the forest. Well, they're in the forest. Let's say they're going to... Let's say they were going to cut a tree down to, to dig out a canoe. Uh, they had to, first of all, they had to acknowledge that the forest belongs to someone, and it doesn't belong to humans, it belongs to the goddess of the forest, which I think is a you know, healthy way to look at it. So, there's a goddess of the forest, and, and therefore you have to get permission, you have to beg permission 
to take something that doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to us. It's, you know, the idea that a tree belongs to us, if you think about it deeply, it's like, really? How does that, how could that be the case? The tree, something we didn't make. How, how does a tree belong to us? You have to get permission, and you go through a similar procedure. So all around the world, uh, people saw the world as enchanted. People saw the world as animated. There, there's, there's some books about this, the, the disenchanting of the world, and the disanimating, like anima, you know, in the Greek soul, like Aristotle's famous book on the soul called De Anima, on the soul. So anima is the soul. To animate is, is to bring something to life. And so uh, I'd like to quote from the Vedas. There is an Upanishad, which I quoted earlier, uh, called the Isha, uh, Isha Upanishad. Isha means the Lord, the Lord Upanishad, not the white mule or the bald man Upanishad, uh, but the Lord Upanishad. And this is actually the only Upanishad which uh, is directly part of... Someone left a voicemail, so I couldn't see my clock. <laughs> so, this is the only Upanishad which is, uh, which is actually part of one of the original Vedas. It's part of uh, uh, one of the uh, white Yajur Vedas. So, this Upanishad begins, it's called the Isha Upanishad because that's the first word of it. And it begins, Isha Vasimi Sarvam. Which means that this entire universe is actually the abode. It's actually the home of God, of the Lord. The entire universe is the, is the home, Avasya, of the Lord. And all that is moving or not moving within the universe. Therefore, Tena Tyaktena Bunjita, which is a direct command, grammatically. You should enjoy, or you should appropriate uh, for yourself, only that which has been set aside for you. Your quota. Tena tiyaktena. Magrida kasyasitana. And never encroach upon anyone else's property. So, there's a natural right to take what you need. And, and of course, when, when our desires vastly exceed our needs, uh, well, we get into the modern world. So, this notion which Professor Rodriguez talks about, I thought he was actually quite eloquent in, in that chapter, for those of you who read it. Do you, really, do you actually read things at the end of the semester? I won't ask. Don't tell me. So, anyway, the idea of, the idea of sacred geography, the idea that, um, well, for example, you have the, uh, these Virat meditations, these meditations on the universe as the body of God where the mountains, the rivers, the rivers are the veins uh, of God's cosmic body. The mountains are his bones, the, the, um, and so on and so forth. That every, every natural thing, every part of the natural world, actually, uh, every part of the natural world is part of the body of God. And every living thing within every living body is an eternal soul. I mean, you can see how if someone actually took this seriously, uh... It would really change the way you dealt with the environment if you took this seriously. If you really saw the entire universe as enchanted, as alive, as sacred, as part of the body of God. <laughs> they are so much into my lecture today. So, now there have, there have been different there have been different views. I mean, for example, Mahavir. Mahavir is said to have starved himself to death. 
the, the Jain founder. Well, that's disrespectful. According to the Jains, there are 24 uh, Jinas or Tirthankaras. He's the 24th, the last one. The first one who kind of comes with a historiographical radar. But anyway, so it's said that he starved himself to death. Now, whether he actually starved himself to death or, pe- or simply a legend arose, a very positive legend that he was so heroic he starved himself to death, uh, I would say in either case, uh, I'm not sure we should really starve our bodies to death. And after all, the Jains have this, um, are more famous than anyone for respecting all life. And I think there's something to be said for respect beginning with yourself. Like if you, if you truly respect yourself and you see that other people are like you then, and you respect everyone. So respecting everyone but yourself or being very kind to everyone's body and starving your own body to death. Uh, well, it makes me wonder. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, and then on the opposite side, you have Tantra. Well, not the earlier Tantra. You have certain forms of Tantra where uh, if it feels good, do it, but tantrically. So that uh, you basically explore and enjoy everything within your body, which you, you very sort of enthusiastically enjoy other people's bodies, but you ritualize it, you formalize it, and you sort of philosophize it into a self-realization process. So, uh, in a sense, whatever your views are, just start trying to lay out an objective spectrum here. It seems that we have two extremes. Starving your body to death, indulging all of your bodily desires within a formal ritualistic context and with a, uh, a philosophical or, or religious goal. And I think in the middle, e- even in terms of what tentatively mainstream Hinduism, in the middle, you have simply a respect for the body, a respect for the body as a divine creation and uh, trying to engage the body spiritually. Any questions on these things so far? Before, all the, before the party really starts. So... Uh, Regarding some other points in the chapter, uh, which we all read, there are certain moral issues. There are certain moral issues, like, for example, selective reading. The fact that um, it's almost enough to make you believe in Marx. That gives you the power of economics. Because in Hindu society, it got to a point where if you had a male child, if you had a male child, then uh, your son's bride would become part of your family and bring a dowry. So you made money on it. And your family was expanding, increasing. And again, in pre-industrial societies, agricultural societies, uh, the more people, the better. There's no unemployment out in the country. If you ever lived on a farm, there's no unemployment. Because uh, there's always something to do. There's fences to mend. There's, I mean, there's just a billion things to do out in the country. We don't have a lot of machines. And so, when you have a daughter, you've got to pay to marry her off. If you don't marry her off, then you know, you're disgraced, so you have to marry her off, and then you have to pay for that. And so you have this selective breeding, which I think is uh, personally evil. And female you know, daughters would be, uh, sometimes they would be done away with, or, or, or nowadays... They say, you know, you can find out scientifically whether you're going to have a male or female child to get rid of the female child. What's interesting about this is that bruna hatya, which is a Sanskrit word for abortion, bruna means the embryo, and hatya means killing, killing the embryo. 
uh, so there's an ancient term which you find in ancient texts. So bruna hatya, killing the embryo, is often given in ancient texts as an example of the most evil possible act. And um, again, because the soul, the soul is there from the moment of conception, because the body is just the vehicle for the soul. So um, you often find a phrase that even someone who has committed bruna hatya can still be saved by surrendering to God if they you know, like like they mend their ways, if they give up their sins, if they really give themselves to God. Even someone who has committed runa hatya can be saved. It was given an example. The reason I bring this up is it's somewhat ironic that you have a country where some people selectively abort or get rid of uh, female children when in their sacred scriptures such an act is considered to be practically the most sinful thing a person could do. So there are all these inconsistencies. There's casteism. And we've discussed that a lot. And, I mean, child brides, you marry your child off very young. That got broke up the Brahmo Samaj. When we talked about that, 19th century, one of the early reactions to uh, the English attempt to uh, convert India to Christianity. So you have this Brahmo Samaj, or Hinduism fighting back. And Influenced by Christianity, they adopt all these moral positions, like against child brides, against the dowry system, against sati, against, you know, all this stuff. And yet, when, when the leader of the Brahmo Samaj married his 13-year-old daughter to a Hindu prince, that actually destroyed the organization. So, uh, widows remarrying. Uh, this gets into an issue we have talked about so much that the role of women and all these things, all these issues, the dowry, uh, where basically you have to bribe the husband's family to get your daughter married, you have to you know, pay them all, and then these horrible bride burnings, which, you know, it, it's, it's a tiny, tiny minority, but it's still thousands of cases that have occurred. The idea basically is that uh, you marry your son to this girl, she brings a dowry. You kill the girl, and you marry your son again and get another dowry. Now, again, in a country with almost a billion people, or now well over a billion people, several thousand cases is, is uh, you know, one in thousands. So it's not that everybody's doing this. But it did go on. This racket where you kill the brides. And anyway, should I go into all the gory details? How your cookies digested. Anyway, sometimes, like in the, you know, in, in the kitchen, they would uh, sort of, you know, douse the bride and ignite her in the kitchen or something like that. And so, and, and, and then, this does not go on among educated people, civilized people. But so all these things, uh, killing the bride, early marriages, giving the dowry, and uh, I think what all the and, and and the fact that widows can't remarry. What all these have in common is, I think, sort of a sick attitude toward women. And uh, the idea that women are somehow, uh, I don't know, radioactive, or, or women are somehow inferior or problematic, and they are to be controlled, they are to be kept down. And because of women's sexuality, you know, women are often attractive. Uh, they often have the nerve to be attractive. And so... You know, that's dangerous, and it's a kind of power, so the women are the underclass, they have to be kept down, and so the fact that women's beauty, or their sexuality, or their charm, or whatever, that gives them a certain power, that power is dangerous, so you have to kind of like keep them stomped down. 
Uh, I mean, I think clearly this is, this is sort of a sick, well, sort of, it, it's, it's, it's a sick, twisted way of looking at the world. And uh, it's not really the picture we get in the ancient texts or even the medieval, even hundreds of years ago. It's just not the picture we get. And it's, um, to me, it's obviously the, the, the product of a, of a broken culture. And if you look at the history of India, the fact that for the last thousand years uh, there has been foreign rule and all kinds of brutality, and, and you get to a point you get this broken culture. Even earlier, I mean, power corrupts. Power corrupts. And when you get these steep hierarchies, when, when you have when we have a culture which is dealing all the time with absolute power because God appeared in this, in this land, and we have this absolute truth, this Brahman, and so people who represent God have absolute, they wield absolute power. This is always a danger of theocracies. The danger is that people in positions of authority have absolute power because they're representing the absolute. And if they are taken to represent God, their pleasure or displeasure can have the most dramatic consequences on your future for millions of years, perhaps eternally. Well, not in the Hindu context, not eternally, but... And so therefore you get that kind of power. And then if you consider, if, if you take the ancient text seriously, we really are in Kali Yuga. This really is the most fallen age. Then you get, you get this very powerful, sophisticated, spiritual culture coming down from thousands of years ago. And now the power is in the hands of people who are products of Kali Yuga, people who aren't so enlightened. And they have all this power, whether it's a Brahmin caste or just the husband or the father. And uh, you get all this corruption sitting in. You get all this corruption sitting in. And it, it involves other things. It involves uh, you know, rates of child abuse and all, and all kinds of issues. So, but still, you have this, I think, that this very impressive culture. You have these principles, this civilization. And if it can be, I don't want to say modernized, because that means too many things. But um, one of the points which Professor Rodriguez points out, and a good point, India now is being thrown more and more into contact with the world. Indians are all over the world. They're bringing back the world to India when they go back there. And so I think the best contribution India could, ma could make is if they could somehow or other recognize clearly their own ancient principles. And uh, I would say with the... It's like if you're by yourself and no one knows what you're doing, you can get very weird in your head. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, if you're in a situation where you have power and you know that whatever you do, no one will ever know what you did and no one can ever stop you from doing it and there's no law above you, it can make people very funny in their heads. And so cultural isolation, cultural isolation can make a culture uh, very weird. When a culture has a sense we have nothing to learn from others, when you kind of become very self-absorbed, so the fact that India and America and everywhere else is forced to associate with the rest of the world, I think it's, it can have the healthy effect. Like when you get out, you, know, you, may be, you may wake up in a very crazy mood, but when you get dressed and, and go out on the street, you've got to sort of behave somewhat sane when you're walking down the street. And so just being with other people or cultures, being with other cultures, being forced on a daily basis to live in a multicultural context can uh, force people to be more sane. So if the higher principles can be preserved and, uh, and even promoted in a healthy context, I think India has an extraordinary contribution to make to the world. Does that make sense? Yes. 
that's exactly what happened. Like India only gained independence in 1947, so you can say they've been isolated for the last 60 or whatever half years. Um, but before that, they were continuously invaded by external forces, so they were always in contact with other cultures. They were never isolated. The isolation, you can say, happened after. India, until the Muslim invasion, India tended to assimilate. The people that came in were coming from Central Asia. They were kind of, you know, a little crude, and they were awed by the sophistication of Indian culture in many cases and adopted it. And so the cultural hegemony, the power of the rabbinical class, for example, was never really challenged by those invasions. Those are military issues. Those are not cultural issues. I mean, I read that this burning of the, the sati thing. It happened in response when uh, the Mughals would invade a fort full of women, like uh, the attack. Well, so it, it, it's mentioned in pre-Mughal literature. Okay. It's mentioned in pre-Islamic literature. So where did it come from? Well, where it comes from, I mean, believe it or not, it was a somewhat romantic idea. And the idea was two people so much attached to each other, they can't live without each other. And so it, it was something which, when we read about it in the ancient texts, and, and I'm not advocating it, by the way, but when we read about it in the ancient, you know what we mean by sati? When the husband dies and, and, and the woman enters the funeral pyre. It was done, the women who did it, and not all women did it, many women didn't do it, even in the ancient context. It was women who, first of all, were, cons- were deeply in love, and secondly, women who were considered to be powerful yogis. Women who were considered to be sort of advanced in, in that in yoga practice. And the idea was that they were actually shedding that body and, and going with their husband to a higher world where they would again be in love. And uh, it was voluntary. Women were not pressured to do it. It was absolutely, I mean, and there were many cases of women not doing it. So it was a completely voluntary thing, and it was uh, a case where a woman did not want to live without her husband and had a certain level of yoga advancement where she actually was able to go with her husband to a, to a higher world where they would again be in love and, and be together. And so that was the original idea. That's the idea you find in ancient texts. And uh, again, I'm not promoting it or recommending it to anyone. I'm just saying that's what they thought they were doing back then. You find that in Mahabharata, for example, and very clearly in the case of Madri. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention about uh, Mahabharata starving himself to death or about legends about him starving. Nowadays, there have been very, a lot of interesting articles coming out like a rise in teen suicide. Uh, I just read one the other day about a dramatic increase in uh, teen self-mutilation. And, uh, of course, smoking is always a rational way to go. And now there's another tendency, apparently uh, young people turning themselves or I guess wannabe porn stars, where they're uh, posting pictures, sort of what the article said, racy pictures of themselves on, you know, different sites and everything. And uh, so somehow, really, I'm not saying that Mahavir was like that. There's something about destroying your body or mutilating your body or doing something which you know is self-destructive. 
it seems there's something here in this wisdom that could speak to these people. If somehow people can understand that uh, it's not that bad, and that your own body is actually sacred, and your own body is actually an extraordinarily valuable gift, and you can use it uh, basically to satisfy all your desires in the highest sense. Uh, so, anyway, I've got these articles I'm reading lately uh, show that there is some need for some greater wisdom. Anything else? Last chance to uh, stump the teacher. No? That's it? Going, going. What's yes? The practice of um, sending widows to ashrams? The what? The practice of sending widows to ashrams? Yeah. Isn't it written in the laws of Manu? Is it ancient? Sending widows to ashram. Yeah. Manu is a notorious, notoriously corrupt text. And uh, widows were not sent away. In other words, women were greatly valued. And uh, many of them were brilliant. And uh, many of them were enlightened. And so I think if you look at the ancient role of women, it, it was in many ways extremely positive. So, it was great uh, being able to do the class with all of you and wish you all luck.